Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Hey everyone, this is Etienne Nichols, and welcome back to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking to someone who has a ton of experience in cybersecurity. His name is Chris Gates. He's the director of product security at Valentium. He's a thought leader in really all aspects of medical device cybersecurity. He wrote the book, Cybersecurity for Medical Devices, and we'll have a link in the show notes, but a lot of takeaways from this episode. There's been a lot of recent laws, legislation, standards, templates, and rules that all apply to how medical devices are developed. And we discuss how some of those could be impacting your organization. So his goal is to raise the awareness of how cybersecurity is realized in medical devices and some of the reasons behind doing it and some of the ways in which you can do it better. So without any further ado, we hope you enjoy this episode with Chris Gates. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. It's good to be with you again. Today with me is Chris Gates from Valentium. Am I pronouncing Valentium correctly? You are. Okay. Today, we're going to be talking about cybersecurity. This guy wrote the book on it, literally, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. If you're interested in more cybersecurity as it relates to medical devices, we will have a link to that. But before we get into that, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. Today's episode is going to be talking about a lot of different subjects related to software as a medical device, specifically cybersecurity, potentially. But Chris, do you want to tell a little bit more about yourself before we just jump into the topics? Sure. As you mentioned, uh, I am the Director of Product Security for Valentium. I've been with them for five years. I was brought in into Valentium to build our cybersecurity division up and set up our whole section of experts so we can help our clients solve their cybersecurity problems and get their products to market faster, but still create safe systems. I myself am a medical device engineer. I have been working and creating medical devices for 50 years as of this year. When I first started, I was the little kid that walked in and now I'm the old guy. And uh, I've gone the entire arc of that existence. And so for the last 15 of those years, I have pretty much been devoted 100% towards cybersecurity. And it's, I still keep my hands in a couple of things like Bluetooth, low energy and stuff. Otherwise I would go crazy as an engineer. But so really my goal in all of this is to be the schizophrenic engineer, developer and hacker. And how do I blend those two? And how do I make this workable in our environment and yet add value in something that you can manage in a development activity and still create these secure products and deliver artifacts that will work for regulatory agencies that will work for yourself two years later when you want to make a change to that product. All of these things come together, not just security because it sounds good or is a box to check, but actually real workable solutions. That's great. So 50 years, man, my goodness. So I can't even imagine what you've seen change over the course. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, we, we started off life with all eight bidders, you know, 6805s and 8051s and stuff like that, that we were working with, but no throughput, no power, no memory, no nothing. And so today I always get a kick out of when I have firmware engineers who complain about it. Oh, well, I can't do that on that. ARM Cortex M33. I just laugh. And it's like, yeah, okay. Yeah, it's so... Anyway, there's been so many changes and then some parts of it that hasn't changed at all. I mean, how we develop firmware, for instance, is very similar to what we used to do. I mean, some of the stuff has gone down in cost. I remember back developing ventilators that used uh, Intel Series 3 and Series 4 blue boxes, $60,000 a piece. And now today we get, you know, JTAG uh, SWD pods that are, you know, six bucks. They're almost disposable. Okay. And it's like, 
So that kind of stuff has changed, but the environment itself, not as much as you would like. I mean, we should all be doing model-based development by now or something like that, we're, we're, but we're still playing around with bits and bytes and C code and, ooh, we got C++, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's remarkable in the sense of what hasn't changed and what has changed and why what we do hasn't gotten more streamlined, more repetitive, more obvious. Well, you know, so you've seen a lot of different changes and there've even been some recent changes. For example, let's just go ahead and lead into this one. The draft guidance that was released from the FDA just a few weeks ago. Curious what your thoughts are, if you have thoughts on that draft guidance. So let's go back to 2014, since we're doing retrospective here anyway. That was the first pre-market cybersecurity guidance. It was the FDA saying, you should make your devices secure. We like unicorns, puppies are cute, and no clear guidance of what their expectations were. This set off all years of me explaining to clients, no, this is what they want, because I would see 483 rejection letters, pre-sub meeting minutes, all of these things were there. They're extremely pointed in what they wanted to see as artifacts to support your claim of being secure. Then in 2018, they came out with a vastly improved document. Unfortunately, they did a couple of things wrong, like the formatting was still in the 2018 format, so it was almost impossible to read. But they did call out all the things you wanted. they wanted to see. Good for them. They now made it concrete. This is what we need to do to get our device to market. That's always my goal. And I was really looking forward to the next spin of this, the 2018 document. And this new one that has come out here, April 7th, while twice the size, and there are some good things, overall it is an improvement to the 2018 one, it's much more readable. There's also a lot of things in there that are gonna add a tremendous amount of burden. Some of the things like the anomalies, you're supposed to take all of your anomalies and do anomaly testing forever over the entire supported life of the product ongoing, and if there's anything that can be weaponized into a vulnerability, and then are there chained vulnerabilities off of that, you suddenly realize that making your medical device is a very small effort compared to what the cybersecurity effort of very low returns is going to be. Who pays for this? Who's doing this? How is this impacting my business going forward? All of these things have to be looked at. And so the other part of this is their lack of ties to real standards. And by that, I mean standards that are used by countries for their country so you can introduce your medical device into their country. I was hoping they would try to harmonize this latest guidance with say ISO and IEC. Wouldn't it be great? Because I mean, if you're marketing a product in the United States, you're probably gonna target the EU as well too. So that means all the ISO, IEC standards that the MDRs refer to, which are good standards. There's no reason not to harmonize with them. And we should, we should tie it together. Instead, they went the route of referencing consensus standards. Now, don't get me wrong, I love a good consensus standard. I'm on the version two JSP committee as an example from the Health Sector Coordinating Council. Greg Garcia, he does a great job. But those aren't real standards. No country says, great, you have to meet the JSP to market your product in our country. So that's kind of upsetting to me. And then on top of it, they put their spin on everything. As an example, the NTIA Working Groups for Software Bill of Materials definition. That is what was adopted for the critical infrastructure of the United States. There are minimum elements that are published. And what this means is, is that oil and gas can come together with pipelines, with medical devices and all these, and we can all work together. And the tools suddenly start to appear because now it's not just poor old little medical device industry. It's all of these industries. So you start getting better tools. 
Well, the FDA came out and said, oh yeah, well, you know, you need machine readable S-bombs, excellent. And then said, and they have to have these weird elements in it that nobody has ever defined or knows how to deal with or wouldn't provide any value. And then they left out a bunch of stuff that they needed to put in there. And I'm like, why did they do this? This is like, look, go out, find the good standards, point to them and say, yeah, do this. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. The views, I like the views, they're really good. Too bad they created their own and didn't go with something like the United Architecture Framework, UAF, and their views. It's like, because there's tools for that. <laughs> so that's the problem I have with the new one. Yeah. Well, the FDA is, or so I go back to the QMSR when I think about what the reasoning and the motivation for the QMSR was to harmonize more with a global standard or global harmonization of different standards as far as that goes. I mean, it sounds like that's not happening in the software world or the cybersecurity world. It is not happening in the cybersecurity world. And I was hoping this would, we would reach, have reached a level of maturity where we'd start to migrate in that direction. That was really my hope for this. Now, it sounds like you're a voice in the industry. Is there hope that this draft could potentially be turned around or, you know, we've talked about on the podcast, even a draft guidance, it's a guidance, but. Ah, but is it? Okay. (laughs) Okay. Draft, Draft effectively means current expectations. Okay. And I know this because, again, I see warning letters, 483s, yeah. subs, many minutes. And guidance means requirements. And they go, well, and in fact, the first part of this document, they go through several paragraphs that explain it's not really that. It's only if you just want to get your product approved to market in the United States that you have to meet these. <laughs> so it's not a requirement. <laughs> How is that not a requirement? But even more than that, and that's always been that way, by the way. I remember uh, Don Witters of the FDA, who's retired like two years ago from the FDA. Good guy. Yeah. Did RF coexistence guidance. And it was like a guidance for like 10 years. Did not spend a lot of money testing because we did. We did all the tests because you had to meet these bars for RF coexistence. So it's not just cybersecurity. It's everything that's viewed that way. So all of that being said, however, there are now the Patches Act in the Senate and the House. And these act basically gives carte blanche to HHS and thus the FDA for what they need to see and when they need to see it and how they need to see it for cybersecurity and medical devices. So this whole thing of this is just a guidance is going away, okay? Okay. And it is going to be a requirement. So if you look at Patches Act on top of this latest guidance, and I was looking forward to the Patches Act, by the way, (laughs) yet another guidance I was very much in favor of. I wanted some teeth, as Suzanne Schwartz said. I think that's good. It clarifies that they're in lead position and they're going to hold your feet to the fire to make secure medical devices. Totally in favor. But I want something that's workable, something that's harmonized, something that they just didn't sit around in a room and say, hey, this sounds good. Let's do this. No, how about stuff that a lot of industry groups have already looked at for years and come together with. So we're all doing it the same way. The tools are available and we can all talk the same language. So how do you propose that? I guess my curiosity is we have... Yeah, industry's big. How do you get that many people in the same room working on the same standard to make that happen? It's real simple. Okay. <laughs> we're not that we're not that big. There's what some 10,000 registered medical device developers. Yeah. You go to an electronic supplier and say, Hey, you know, I need my hundred thousand chips for this year. And they're going to laugh. Okay. You're nothing. We think we're big because we're in a small pond, but now you look at something like oil and gas pipelines, Mm. nuclear power generation, okay, on and on, okay, those, you put all of those 16 industries that make up the critical infrastructure together, that is a big pond, okay, and that gets respect. So what you want to do is exactly what the executive order did last year, 
which was put them all into the same area and say, these all are gonna to have to live up to cybersecurity standards. That means now tools can start to be created. Standards can be put in place and adopted and really said, okay, these are workable. And these are the things we're gonna use. And we're all gonna speak this same language and the same way of doing it, going about it. Love it. That economies of scale, you can hire people across disciplines. You can get people that are trained in this. It all works out for the better in the end. So uh, what we don't need is yet another, I'm going to go off and create my own way of doing this. Yeah, now that makes sense. So I guess if we take a step back from trying to heal the industry at a industry level scale, let's talk about specifically the draft guidance. You mentioned the anomaly testing. So a company that now is working on their software and medical device, and they have this guidance, what do you recommend or what are your suggestions as they're looking through this, trying to you know follow the requirements guidance or no guidance, you know, that debate beside the point, what are your thoughts on how a company should go about doing these things? Well, and there really are good standards when you're developing. And since you specifically call that out, the total product life cycle is much larger, but let's just talk about the development portion. What you're looking for are not threats. Okay. If I told you, oh, uh, protect this device against ransomware. What do you as a developer do or not do to make that happen? Eh? And the answer is, is you don't know. So as a developer who's got you know, 5,000 lines of code to write that day, what is he going to do? He's going to ignore it. Ah. <laughs> okay. So that isn't a workable requirement. Instead, what you have to look for are the vulnerabilities. Vulnerabilities are the end root cause of all exploits and threats. So if I said there were 34 different ways ransomware infects a system, would you know I'm telling you the truth? I'm lying, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> no, no clue. Right. <laughs> right, exactly. So really what you're looking for are those pseudo 34 or however many they are, vulnerabilities that are in your system. This could be things such as I designed this incorrectly and I'm not doing authentication on this communications connection. I didn't implement it correctly and I'm not looking at my buffer overflow. I'm using unsafe intrinsic functions to move key material around that's used for authentication or integrity. So you have, during development, three different places where you create vulnerabilities during design. The aforementioned, I'm moving PHI over this, I'm doing command and control without authentication or authorization or integrity checking. Those are design choices you make up front. I hard-coded a password. <laughs> My favorite example of you just don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Hard-coding a password. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Whenever you see that, it's not like, oh, I feel sorry that you missed some zero-day vulnerability. It's like, no, you clearly just don't care. Okay. <laughs> so those are all design vulnerabilities. Implementation vulnerabilities are like that. You coded it incorrectly. You did it in a way that the coding was insecure. And then lastly, the third places where you create vulnerabilities are in your use of third-party software components. You inherit these things and you're you you know, you're a Java programmer and you say, hey, I want to do logging. So I'm going to go out and get the industry leading logging library, Log4j. And guess what? You just inherited some vulnerabilities. You also inherited 294 sub-transitive dependencies that you don't even know exist, but it needs for it to function. Yeah. So in this day and age where your supply chain is intentionally being attacked, and if people are intentionally putting bad code, these aren't just weaknesses now, they're intentionally being inserted into these repos, and you got 294 of them, you suddenly start to realize human beings can't do this, okay? Mm -hmm. It can't be. This all has to be machine readable. This all has to be automatic. We have to use tools to do this for us to try to expose to us, whether we're developers, whether we're the consumers of these products, 
you're literally looking at tens, if not hundreds of thousands of components that have to be looked at. Obviously not a human problem. So the software bill of material portion of that, does that feed into that machine readability? And so one of the questions that I have too about SBOM, for example, is, is there a standardized way of putting that SBOM together? And is it going to be something that a machine is going to read that and be able to do something automatically with it? Or is it still just for humans to look at? What are your thoughts on the SBOM as that pertains to that? So by way of credits for this, I have been on the Software Bill of Materials Working Group from initially NTIA for four years and under the great and wonderful Alan Friedman, the man can herd cats like nobody else. <laughs> so, and we were a bunch of highly opinionated experts uh, defining what this was. And I thought this was going to be relatively straightforward because like everybody, I had my blinders on. Sure. And then as you got all the other experts in the room, you start to realize this is a very big topic. So we explored and fluffed out all the edge conditions of this. We took standards that were already in existence, usually for license tracking of software, made twists and modifications into them. And we had representatives from these groups, Kate Stewart from Linux Foundation with SPDX format, Steven Spirit from OWASP and Cyclone DX, both great, great ways of JSON-oriented files to convey these, to be generated by machines during development, to be monitored by those developers going forward by tools like MedCrypt's Heimdall and CyberElum, all these good tools that are out there for doing this, all completely automatically bringing this to your attention. The place where we early on discovered there was a problem is you've got a product and here's your ventilator and I'm using OpenSSL on it. Oh, it's 1.1.f. It's the one that's susceptible to heart bleed, okay? Mm. That's one part of it that deals with, there's about six lines of code that deals with certificates in there. That's where you have this memory leak. Maybe I'm just using it to generate random numbers. So your software build materials says to that end consumer, oh, that ventilator is at risk because it has this vulnerable version of Maybe the way you built the code with conditional compiles, that code isn't even in there, but it's the right version. So we realized early on, we needed yet another way of conveying this to be useful without getting tons of false positives. And that was what we called the VEX, horrible name, by the way. We all universally agreed we hated it, and yet we all called it this, <laughs> the Vulnerability Exposure Machine-Readable Document. And we worked with the OWASP, uh, excuse me, uh, the OASIS Standards Group to come up with a separate document that's a JSON machine-readable one that is basically the manufacturer's position where you, it's, there's a bunch of substates, but the primary states are, it's an investigation, you're affected, or you're not affected. If you're not affected, it's pretty primal. If you are affected, it could be under it, maybe based upon a setting, for instance. If you set this setting configuration item, then you would mm. be affected by it. But it has some subcategories as well. This allows you to come back and have that position of the developer inform you to even greater degree whether or not the device that's in your institution is at risk or not. And that's the goal of this whole thing, is to really inform people automatically, hey, you've got to go worry about this device. This device, you need to disconnect. You need to apply the patches. You need to contact the manufacturer. You need to feed it to a wood chipper. <laughs> whatever, it, whatever it is, that's the whole thing. And sending out text messages and emails and notices, no, there's just too much. You're overwhelming human capability. Mm -hmm. So that VEX program that you're talking about, that's something that the hospital themselves would be using on software that is being used inside right. there. Yeah. Right. Okay. And the beautiful part, like Cyclone DX version 1.4 has now incorporated VEX into the SBOM itself. So we have uh, distribution systems like Archivist that's out there right now that you can go out and either behind a password and credentials or not, you can make it open source as well. You put out your SBOM. 
your device can self-identify using something like the MUD standard from IETF that is now got, the IETF has formalized a way of including to point to an S-bomb. So you could go out and say, hey, ventilator, tell me, where can I get your S-bomb? And it would go, okay, over the manufacturer's usage description protocol would give you a URL that you would go over to Archivist, pull this S-bomb up that would be for the version that's in this ventilator, and you could see the software build materials and the VEX information encoded inside of that one place. All completely JSON, machine-readable, consumable, and now the piece that is missing, all of that's in place. We've got really robust tools for that. Yeah. The piece that's missing is that asset management system in the health delivery organizations. The HDOs, those that do have asset management systems, don't have this capability. We need that built in. So this thing says, okay, we've got a thousand ventilators here and those floor number 11 <laughs> in this building, okay, <laughs> need to be upgraded. Uh, okay. And that's literally the level of involvement that's workable by a human being. That's a way these in institutions can really protect themselves. And the interesting thing about this is this relationship between medical device manufacturers, MDMs, health delivery organizations, HDOs, is how they work together. The MDM creates these devices, throws them over the wall basically to its customers and says, here you go. And they're on the front lines. Who's going to take the abuse if they get attacked? It's going to be them, especially with things like ransomware. It may take down your whole organization. Yeah. So now we're seeing things like the Health Sector Coordinating Council come up with model contract language for cybersecurity, which is a way for all of the HDOs out there to use fixed sets. There's 45 different clauses to include in your contracts when you're buying medical device. Mm. And it says, these are our expectations contractually enforced for us to be supported by you over the life of this device. I see. Okay. We want S-bombs. We want people to talk to. We want, in case of a breach, we want some help that we can have people come in here. We want to see a periodic cadence of updates. These were things that they spent 18 months building up. It's a great concept because it'll reduce the amount of work MDMs have to do with everybody having their own one-off level of doing it. It'll be a more standardized approach and it'll improve the security posture of HDOs. That makes sense. So really they took that risk-based approach similar to 14971 beginning with the end user in mind. And part of the reason I even bring that up is some of the people I talk to about, you know, software bill of materials, like, why do I need a bill of materials? You know, why are you telling me how to do this? But it's really for the end user. Well, that's the main one. Yeah. And it's really, I mean, there, first off, we have a huge problem with MDMs. We talk about HDOs, like it's this monolithic thing. <laughs> the HDOs run the gambit. You have at one extreme Mayo Clinic who does everything right. They have pin testers. They're very thorough about their security. And then at the other side, there is a hospital that will remain unnamed. It's in Ohio <laughs> that the guy who mows their lawn is the guy who sets up their network. Okay. okay. And there's everybody in between. So a lot of what we're doing here now is not for the Mayo clinics. It's for the everything in between. How do we do this in a way that's cost effective? How do we, things like these asset management tools, the lawnmower guy, maybe he can't even afford the asset management tool, but a few notches up, those HDOs can and should to avoid the huge risk and speak to what their risk appetite is. They don't want a device that's gonna take down their entire network and cause them tens of millions of dollars in loss. So there's that, that is the primary market, <laughs> primary audience we're into. But you know who's next? The manufacturers themselves. So you're a big manufacturer. You've got potentially thousands, if not tens of thousands of legacy medical devices that are still out there being used have not reached end of support yet. You're on the hook for them. 
something comes up and you've got uh, Sventooth, uh, the BLE family of vulnerabilities here a few years ago. A lot of companies spent a lot of time with engineers going back through going, all of these devices, what semiconductor manufacturer was this? What version of the stack were we using? Are we susceptible to this? Where if you use some of the tools that are now commercially available, like I mentioned Heimdall, this tells you instantly. As yeah. a manufacturer, you go, oh, here's your product lines. Here's the ones that are affected that are using that same version. And you go, oh, okay. They even got linkages out to Jira. So you go, yeah, just punch this into Jira and the developers now have to pay attention to it. Okay. So there's stuff like that, that it saves the manufacturer huge amounts of time creates a better product and it's actually cheaper. Very cool. That That's good to know that there are things out there that you can definitely do things like that. The draft guidance though. So you kind of answered that question that I asked about how companies should do this. I think you gave a great overview of how companies should approach cybersecurity. How now, I guess when you have a draft guidance that comes out with like your opinion might be that there are things that maybe they may miss the mark on. You know, how do companies handle that? Well, till July 7th, you have a comment period. At the FDA, I've seen comments ignored. I've seen comments taken seriously and applied. Who knows how this is going to work? But this is your time to speak, industry. Time to push back. Look at what they put out there. Walk through that relatively large 49-page document line by line. There are some things in there that start to get your attention. Like we're going to be doing ongoing testing against all of our legacy products for their supported life. And that includes things like anomaly testing, which is orders of magnitude more than vulnerabilities, right? and chaining of those, okay? which means permutations. So all of a sudden you start to realize that, oh yeah, it took us nine months to develop this medical device. We're going to be spending five years testing it here. Uh. Okay. And it's like, uh, there's a lot of burden that's going into this. And some of that, like that anomaly part of it, really needs to be pushed back on. Non-adherence to standards, as I mentioned, I really wish they would just stick to the standards and not try to get creative mm -hmm. uh, because they're doing themselves and everybody a disservice. So that's really what I've got. I mean, I've got 61 items that I'm pushing back on that we'll be submitting into the system. And anything from grammar to major issues like the software building materials that they came up with their own method. So there's a lot of that there. Industry, take advantage of this, review this, especially in light of the Patches Act that make these, would make these mandatory if it passes. We want something workable and we want something that really gives us value. I guess the idea right now is if this did go through and not think about the Patches Act prior to that, you could make arguments, I suppose, against some of that testing. Yeah. Is that accurate? Yes, you can. Not very successfully. Right. That's the um, other side. Might, might win a battle, but lose a war. <laughs> and at the very least, you're going to be spending many, many more months getting your pre-market approval. My goal with what we do and all my clients is that I try to streamline the process to make it so obvious we did the right things for security that they go through and don't even have a question. I mentioned Sventooth earlier for Bluetooth. Anything that has Bluetooth low energy in it, I immediately talk about why it's not a problem. I outline all the ways it can fail for Sventooth and other known vulnerabilities and just call it out because it's like, nope, I'm just going to clarify this up front. We did it right. Here yeah. we go. Okay. I'm not waiting around for you to ask me in another 90-day delay that we throw into this whole thing. We just want to streamline it and get it out the door. And it's like, we did it right. So that's really what I look for in any of these type of guidances is how workable is it for our industry? What is the value it brings? What is the huge amount of work that brings no value? Let's minimize that. And so, yeah, I was a little disappointed in the guidance. I mean, it is a step up, but it could have been better. Yeah. Well, 
So the other thing, so we talked a little bit about development. I use that word and you mentioned product lifecycle when we were talking about how to approach cybersecurity. So in light of these different items that you've brought up, what about a company that does have that legacy software out there or those legacy products that utilize software? Do you have any recommendations or suggestions on how they could be better? <laughs> yeah, get ahead of it. What you don't want is some disclosure that happens, you know, seems like every week of some sort of third-party software component that then you're wondering, am I affected by it? Get ahead of it and start creating software bill of materials for these legacy products that you can put into a management tool and have it do it for you. That way, you're not scrambling at a time to try to quickly address this. You're ahead of the game time-wise and you have this in there, but you can create these software bill of materials for the legacy at a low priority background task with your people to build this library up and keep it going. And then as you introduce new products, of course, with those, you'll have pre-created software bill of materials. Get those into place. Let these tools do the work for you. End of the day, you'll have a better product. You'll have better relationships with your customers, and it'll be cheaper than doing all those manual work. That makes sense. The whole area of supply chain, by the way, yeah, it's an umbrella term. It's like threat modeling. There's a lot of different things that you can mean by that, okay? Supply chain, we always think of as our vendor. Yes, one step up, yes. And certainly things like CISA and NIST even, it has a very heavyweight 200 and some odd page guidance on how to do that, but it's still good, just big, of how to deal with your vendors. That's only one out of like 12 to 15 different vulnerabilities that can occur. And there's a lot of different things. So in supply chain, we're very much following the Josh Corman crawl, walk, <laughs> run model of implementation. We are very much at that crawl stage. So we want to go out, look at those vendors, qualify our vendors, bring in the code, keep our code in our own repo, use the code that we've qualified to be in there. Those are simple, easy to use. We have tools for them in place. We know we can do them all crawling. The rest of all those vulnerabilities are only now starting to be looked at for how do we do this? How do we incorporate this into the tools? How do we make this work at the Linux Foundation in Toto? And GitLab is now doing some of that sort of stuff of creating attestation as you check things in and out of your repo, including your CI system. All of this looks at who touched this, why did they touch it, what was affected from a cryptographic standpoint. So all very cool stuff, but that's like tomorrow. That's not quite today. It's getting close but not quite today. But what you can do is look at things like that CISA vendor qualification questions and literally incorporate that into your acquisition model of, I wanna go out and use this. How do I know what it is? Where is it coming from? Don't dynamically pull from it, do whatever testing, do whatever qualification is needed, keep it in your own repo. And before you update that, you go through that process again. So a lot to be done over there, a lot of growth. CISA. So tell me that one more time and I'll try to put maybe a link in the show notes. C-I-S-A. Okay. I will send you a link to it if you're interested. Yeah, that'd be great. Because we do get some questions about supplier management for software. And really, if you just zoom out, just in general, software is a medical device versus a physical device. Sometimes people ask, well, does that mean the DMR is obsolete for software or supplier management? Is that required for software? What are your thoughts on those things? Not obsolete at all. If anything, get it more robust, polish it up, make it more streamlined, get rid of the index cards. Uh, <laughs> you know, the traveler should not be in this. This should all be digital. You want this stuff so you can scan through there and come up with these answers in seconds, not you know many, many person hours of work to come up with the answers you need. So no, definitely not. You want to make this and stop resisting. 
this is the part that really, I mean, we started this in 2014, okay? You know, I get it, 2015 people are still going, I don't know what I have to do with my medical list. It's, come on, it's 2022, time to stop being the ostrich, pull your head out of the sand, take a look at what you need to do to be a good corporate citizen and create secure medical devices. At the very least, look at it as a competitive advantage in the industry. Those who do this are gonna be selling more products. It's just that simple. Those who advertise it and talk about it, it's gonna be a competitive advantage going forward. So there'll still be some institutions that are only gonna buy for cost. That's you know the beginning and ending of the whole thing, but more and more pressure is even being put on them. And even from their business perspective, that may be penny wise pound foolish in the sense that, yeah, we got this super cheap thing, but everything's attacking it. And it was a pivot point in the rest of our organization and we lost you know, weeks of time and we had to close down and millions and millions of dollars. So look at that and say, who's giving me a better product at the end of the day? Okay, they're five bucks more, but look at all this proof they can show us that we've done a good job for cybersecurity and are gonna work with us. So yeah. that's the differential that we see doing in the industry. If you don't do it for ethical reasons, do it for your bottom line. Yeah. And do you want to talk about your book for a moment? Because, I mean, obviously, we've been talking about cybersecurity. We're, we've been what, talking about this. Book? This book up there? This, oh, guys, look, look right here. We got <laughs> Medical device cybersecurity. I'm curious. So you have a lot of experience, but it's such a moving industry, and you wrote the book. So tell me. <laughs> so I, perfectly done. Perfectly done. So back in 2020, myself and one of the employees here, who's a technical writer at Valentium, great guy, Jason Smith. We decided we were going to write a book on medical device cybersecurity. We kind of figured, eh, it'll probably be a vanity press. We'll go pay somebody to print these, right? So we started this up. We had the outline. We did the table of contents first and you know, start to burn down from the top down. And about this time, Artec Publishing out of London contacted my buddy, Axel Worth, who works at MedCrypt, and great guy, Axel, another senior security person in the industry like myself, knows it all. And they contacted him and said, hey, a few years back for Amy, you wrote a book on cybersecurity for hospitals. Would you like to do one focused toward the manufacturers? And he said, yeah, but hang on, can I bring on other people? Oh, sure. So he came to me and says, Chris, would you like to write a book? And I said, well, here's the outline for it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> we were on a Zoom meeting and I pulled it up and showed it to him. Awesome. It's like, and it's, it's like, we've already started on this and we had a blast writing it. And we knew when we wrote it that three to five years out, a lot of it's going to be obsolete. And so the book went out and won two different cybersecurity book of the year awards in 2021. And it's been one of our tech publishing's biggest books they've ever sold. It was on the bestseller list for Amazon for a while for technical books. Wow. I love it when I bring on a client and they hold up the book and there's post-it notes sticking out. Yes. <laughs> they are the best to work with. This is what I love because you've already brought them up way higher than they were before reading this. And you can now say, I don't need to talk to you as a child. I can now talk about the advanced things and where we need to go. It makes the engagement so much easier. Love it. So all of that's gone on. And here the other day, our tech came back and said, you guys said that's going to be obsolete. Yeah. You want to do second edition? All right. <laughs> so there's a second edition coming that will be out there. And we have to, uh, when you write this, because of all the latencies, you have to shoot out a little farther and figure out where things are going and, or at least leave them for the last part of the book to be written. So we're updating it, we're spinning it, things that have changed, we're leaving in original content that's still very valid and we're going forward with that. We're also gonna be bringing in more expert industry. We've already had a good set of industry advisors that wrote content for us as well. We'll have more of those. So yeah, we're happy about that. I'm glad to make a difference in my industry. That's my goal. That is super cool. Well, 
we'll put a link in the show notes so everybody will be able to read it. And then maybe we can have a follow-up episode later after everybody's gotten the book and read it and <laughs> look it over again. Hey, um, and don't think I'm getting rich on it. Uh, believe me, first book you've written as a technical book, you make no money on at all. I've talked to authors before. It's just, the margins are so small and the numbers, they sound big to us, but oh man. I'm so, just glad the impact it makes. That's what makes me happy. That's huge. That's that's so huge. And I'm really glad you're looking at those guidances and providing guidance to those who are writing the guidances as well. So that's that's exciting. Try to. Yeah. Any other recommendations or thoughts you just want to share with other medical device manufacturers out there before we shut it down? Oh, things like the myths of the go on in this industry. Uh, Please, I'm yeah. My, I'm putting my medical device in a medical institution. It's their responsibility to make it secure. No. Nobody's ever going to attack my medical device because we're nice people and we're helping people. <laughs> Why would they do that? Go take a look at some of the recent disclosures of chat messages between malware writers where they basically knew they were targeting some 400 HDOs and they basically said F them. Wow. Uh, and this would have, if it had gone come to fruition, would have really endangered a lot of lives. They don't care. Okay. Don't go out there and say, hey, I'm going to leave my USB port completely open and I will attack it if you leave your USB open. It's completely vulnerable, no matter what else you do. Don't leave enabled manufacturing functionality. During the manufacturing process, I need to calibrate this. I need to stress test it. Do not, do not, when you go to the last stage on your manufacturing line, disable those, that functionality permanently. Uh, I'm not saying contract, and in fact, I'm actually trying to work myself out of a job contract third-party security experts. I don't want you to. I want you to have your security experts in-house. And since we're very short supply, get them trained. Valentium offers training for your people, uh, other training organizations and universities as well too, some of which we stood up training programs in those universities actually, like University of Colorado Boulder, we've got a, a good program going on there and several others. So these are the things, get them trained, bring that in-house. Okay? Make this part of just another ism that you include in your development. Used to be we never considered human factors, right? Yeah. And now we realize we do and we incorporate it and it's just another thing we do. Same with cybersecurity. Don't make this some sort of standout thing that you have to go get a high-priced security expert to do this. Get this in-house. Get the people trained so they know how to do this. Uh, this is the kind of thing, this is the goal I have for my industry is that I can walk into any manufacturer here within five years, talk to their engineers, and they're going to answer intelligently cybersecurity questions. I've seen so, so much, as well as the FDA has seen so much that at the end of the day appears to be intentional obfuscation. And I think 90% of it is just ignorance of what to use. The FDA asking what kind of encryption and how big of an encryption key are you using with this data stream? And they come back and go, SHA-1, <laughs> which is the rough equivalent of saying, what car do you drive to work? And you go, Boeing 747. Yeah. <laughs> Oh no. It's like they're oh, both no. vehicles. They're both cryptographic in nature, but one's not a car. <laughs> and it's what like, a great example. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, this is the kind of stuff. And it's, you have to believe that at the FDA, that people are just sitting there slapping their forehead going. And by the way, that, that particular example I saw did not get approved at pre-market approval. And they shouldn't because they ask those questions. And that's when I got involved after the fact. And it's like, now let's go back and explain to them exactly what we're doing. Let's fix all the problems and then show them that we fixed them all. That's what you need to do. Just be logical about it. Go through it and do it in an intelligent way. That's cool. I love that you're educating the entire industry. That's going to be great. That's a huge impact. It's a heck of a goal, huh? 
Yeah. <laughs> Big goals. Yeah, that's awesome. Makes life worthwhile. All right. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it, Chris. Hopefully we can have you on again in the future, possibly. Maybe when the draft is no longer draft. We'll talk more about that at some point, potentially. But those of you who've been listening, thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. If you are interested in learning more about Greenlight Guru, as we are powered by Greenlight Guru, head over to www.greenlight.guru and check the show notes. We should have several links there for you to further research on what Chris is talking about. Thank you, and we will see you all next time.